0: The following episode was recorded at the Maine Historical Society in Portland on August 12th with a live audience. you all here. Welcome to the Maine Historical Society. My guests today are Danny Bettino, uh, an early American historian at Rutgers University, and Hannah Peterson, a seamstress tailor, historical reenactor, and independent scholar. Welcome. Danny thank you. and Hannah, thank you. So glad to be here. Mm, yes, and welcome to all of you, studio audience, <laughs> for our first in-person <laughs> live show. So the uh, today's show is about the story of patience Boston, only the third person to be executed in colonial Maine that we know of. Uh, it is a tale of, of many surprising twists and turns. Uh, and so, to begin with on this case, uh, I was wondering if uh, you could tell us who Patience Boston was um, and why she ended up in Maine, because she was in fact a Nauset woman from Cape Cod, Massachusetts.
1: Sure thing. So, we really enjoy fleshing out the story of patients, and don't often get a chance to. <laughs> People want to focus on specific elements, um, which we'll get to. But. Patience was actually born on Cape Cod in, um, let's see, it's the island of Monomoy, Monomoy yes. and she was a Naset Indian. Um, you know, she uses the word Indian to describe herself. That's probably the word that I'll use, you know, when she is talking about herself. Um, but interestingly, she grew up in a really thriving community with a lot of interaction between the English settlers and the native Nauset people um, and her parents were Son- John Sampson and Sarah Jethro. Um, this is an angle we're looking forward to looking into more because it seems like she came from some pretty interesting and important lineage mm-hmm. um, and that sometimes comes up but She was probably baptized. Her mother was in full communion with an Indian church at Mm Nauset, and this would be part of what was called the praying Indian community, um, which was thriving there. And sadly, her mother died when she was three, and that's really when things changed for her. Um, Her father, for reasons we don't have a full context for, Mm -hmm. binds her as an indentured servant to the family of a man named Paul Crow, And they were um, a religious family, and I think both by choice and by law, they educated her. Mm -hmm. So she was taught to read, probably not to write. That was pretty Mm -hmm. common at the time, that you would learn to read and not to write, unless you needed to write. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was taught the catechism. So she started out with a a religious education. Things do go downhill fairly quickly for her. Unfortunately, by the time she's 12, she has set fire to the house three times, which I think is a bit of a red flag.
0: Did she succeed? Uh,
1: that's a good question. Okay. The fact that she tried again twice right. implies that the first okay. two times Fair. she Fair. failed. Okay. <laughs> but um, her mistress dies when she's 15. She is very sad, but, and all of this is Patience's relation. So yeah. she has a narrative that she dictates, and this is her telling her own story. Um, And we
0: know, and we'll get to it, it is mediated, so she's dictating it, and it's accorded by these two ministers, Yes. so they're, of course, editing it for varying degrees for their own purposes, which they are very public about saying in the published text. Right. Can I ask, so you mentioned she binds herself as an indentured servant. Indentured servitude is something that most people are not that familiar Mm -hmm. with, other Mm -hmm. than maybe they know, oh, some people, came from England as, as servants to, to pay their own way. But so when somebody, whether indigenous or European or African-American mm-hmm. at various points in the colonies, mm-hmm. becomes an indentured servant or binds themselves, uh, what does that mean? Because they're not free and they're also not a slave.
1: Right. You want to take oh, this, Danny? Yes.
2: Oh, well, I can talk about it. Um, so you're bound. So you're not a slave in that you are not bound for your whole life. However, a an in, in indentured servant would be bound for a term of years, um, often seven years, but it could be it could be anything. And then, according to the contract which is made, usually and in fact, these servants are usually bound at very young ages by their parents, mm-hmm. as we talked about in Patience's case, by her father after her mother died. And in the typical contract, uh, you'll see that. These servants, then, are young children. But as they grow older, their duties are, of course, to either be a servant in the household or, in some cases, especially for young boys, to be taught the trade of the father in in the house that they're serving at. And then, uh, eventually, once the term of years and the contract is over, then the servant is granted freedom and is usually, of course, Given um, often what you see is given a new suit, so they're given one nice suit of um, so generous of <laughs> clothing of course you're the you're the clothing history expert here, yes. but from what I've been able to gather from probate records, having a, a new suit was quite a big deal since most even the wealthiest people in their probates, if you look through them, especially in the seventeenth century, they often only have three or four suits, sometimes even less. so this number of objects in general was much lower for. Um, early, early modern people. Follow-up,
0: if we're talking about, you know, people's lived experiences and how happy or not they might be. So servants are very much, by description, unfree, as were many early Americans, above all the enslaved. But indentured servants, so they can't, they have limits on their movement. They're subject to curfew. Most are not allowed to get married. They are... Subject to various degrees of physical punishment. What mm-hmm. rights did indentured servants have that enslaved people did not?
1: Well, the education was a big one.
0: Okay. So yeah.
1: one thing that we do find people are really surprised by is that this indigenous mm-hmm. woman um, could read. Mm-hmm. And there's, in fact, um, I get very uh, annoyed about it and will say, don't you know anything about the <laughs> Massachusetts Bay Colony Charter of 1642? And mm-hmm. You're supposed to be a historian and so forth, but not you. Uh, people. Yeah, people I get in, that a lot, too. People Come in on, general. Yeah, <laughs> But it was actually in reaction to the fact that there were some abuses perpetrated on indentured servants. And this yes. was one of the responses to that. Okay, you must teach them to read and raise them up in the scripture, as they would have put it. And, you know, a big purpose in learning to read at the time would be to read the scripture, um, which should, you know, educate you to be a full and, um, well, appropriate to your station member of society. Um,
0: and also, indentured servants, they were able to testify legally in a yes. way that enslaved people were not. Oh, yes. Could
2: they sue as well? <laughs> That's a good That's question. That's a good question. Yeah. I, I would okay. I would presume it was possible. Okay. But I haven't ever, I've, in the court records of Maine, which I've read through, I don't believe I've ever seen an instance of that. Okay. Happening. Okay.
0: <laughs> this is where those multiple things can be true, where, yeah. like, it's bad to be an indentured servant. It's also not as bad as being a slave. Yes. Right. You can be unfree and not a slave in yes. all kinds of stations, like married women. You're and legally <laughs> dependent uh, by law and so forth. Again, the royal you. Not and anybody.
1: this seems like a great segue <laughs> to the next stage of her life. Excellent. Yes, so after her indenture ends, um, she marries. Uh, a black man who is enslaved and sort of gets grandfathered in. That's really not the right word, but she gets included in his um, term of slavery. The language is a little unclear here. So either until her husband dies or until the master dies. It just says he. So we're not sure. It's mm. an
2: issue simply of the grammar in the narrative. Right. Mm. So basically, Patience in the narrative says that she married the, marries this man whose name is not even in the narrative, but from other records, we know that his name was uh, Caesar Boston. Okay. Um, and in the text of the narrative says that after I married him, we should note that Patience was free at this time because right. her term of servitude had to the ended. Crow family had ended. Uh-huh. And so she was free, and then she freely chose to marry this Uh, black man uh, named Boston and then the text patients speaking says I was bound uh, to in service with him for the term of his life and the pronoun it's not clear whether it's referring to the master of Boston or to Boston however and this has been, if you look at previous scholarship on Patients Boston, this is something that is often just glossed over because no one really knows what to do with it because it's not clear. And of course, there's no paperwork. Um, it's possible even that no paperwork was actually filed just to keep the case sort of murky so that patients could be bound, which, which was is common practice.
1: Not super cool.
0: Right.
2: The be- yeah. There's two good books on this to
0: shout out Margaret Newell's. Yes, exactly. um, oh, God, the title. Um, um, that was Brethren by name. Thank you. About especially indigenous uh, slavery and indentured servitude and yeah. debates about it in 17th century New England. And then there's Joanna Pope Mellish's book about slavery and anti-slavery in New England. Um, and there's this very kind of shadowy, yes. under-the-table uh, underclass of largely non-white New Englanders, some poor white New Englanders yes. who are like quote wards of the town mm-hmm. um, and uh, above, you know, you're know you more likely to be in this case if you are an, an indigenous person or, or black uh, but not only and like the degree of the sort of legal status of these people Formally versus informally as historians are still sort of trying to figure out what it was right. So like slavery was legal everywhere in the English colonies yes. uh, All the way up until the American Revolution. <laughs> so the issue is just how prevalent it was right. um, And you know, you're, you're sort of in New England usually experiences kind of varied. It was somewhat more personal Right. Yeah. Yes. And I so okay.
1: I, I do think uh,
2: patience was in this shadowy. Yes area
1: and while there so I trying yeah. to not make this too long because like mm-hmm. there's so many there are many areas where we don't have detail and then there are areas where we have a lot. Yes. But um, her husband's
2: we'll patience, right? <laughs> her husband
1: is a whaler. So, you know, a whaler as a slave, as an enslaved man, mm-hmm. but he would be away for long periods of time and patience, you know, self-describes herself as essentially um, being enticed to the love of strong drink. Yes. Um, this is one of the few places where she mentions um, other Indians, as she yes. calls them, that they um, draw her into the love of strong drink. So, and she talks about um, hating her husband and having bad wishes to herself and others. I mean, there are a lot of signs that patients had, had various struggles. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a difficult, thing to not be able to read too much in but to need to be empathetic to her situation mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean if you simply consider the fact that at age three she was bound to a white family so I can't know this with utter certainty but I doubt that she had her own language mm-hmm. oh, yes. um, yeah. it's unlikely that she grew up having her her Nosset, I think it's the Narragansett
0: language. the Wampanoag. The Nosset were a yeah. member of the right. Wampanoag Confederacy, yeah. right. which linguistically, so the Wampanoag name for themselves means the same thing as the Wabanaki name for themselves. They're yep. sort of linguistic right. distant yeah. relatives. And they were familiar with each other on the coast well yeah. before colonizers yes. got there.
1: So she didn't have, we believe, her own language. Right. She certainly didn't grow up fully uh, a white English person. She didn't yeah. grow up with full exposure to her her native roots either, which I right. find really heartbreaking. And yes. as a way to start your life, um, you know, we never hear anything else about her dad, so yeah. we don't know what happens there. But anyway, so she is she gets pregnant, um, finds out she's pregnant while her husband is away.
0: Um. And we do we know who the father? I he think is. the
1: implication oh, yeah. is it's her husband. Almost but certainly. But yeah. later, there will be more questions about yes, other sure. children. Anyway, um, her her baby is born damaged. Her baby is born with broken bones. And she feels that it's because of her rambling, is the word she uses. Mm-hmm. And it dies within a few weeks, and she believes it's guilty of her death. And from there, we go on to multiple stories that she tells of having children and having killed them. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't... I'll skip ahead a little bit, but she she has another baby, and after her husband returns, considers killing it. This yep. is pretty intense stuff, I will say, and yes. I, I'm so passionate about her story that I sometimes forget how horrible it is, so mm. I'll just tell people very excitedly, you know, I've been researching this woman, Patience Boston, her story needs to be told. What's she famous for? Killing a kid.
2: Yes, this is like that that time you were featured in the Bangor Daily News.
1: Oh, I wasn't gonna talk about the headline that said. <laughs> it's, it's a public record. Oh, Maine Maine woman seeks to humanize Maine's most notorious child killer. I. No, no, no. I could not believe it. <laughs> yes. And that's a whole other thing. Yes. But
0: journalists, journalists. I am
1: seeking to humanize her.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, it may be editors, let's be fair to the journalists. But, um,
0: I mean, the, to use a modern term, it sounds, by her own description, she just sounds like, you know, she's unhappy with mm-hmm. good cause. Yes. She's had a difficult right. life. Yeah. And, you know, if she was in the school system today, they'd call her like a troubled youth or yeah. something, right? Or something yeah. where deserving of... You know certainly sympathy and support, mm-hmm. and I was gonna ask. You know sometimes you hear people talk about like people you know, especially on crime shows, committing suicide by cop. Right. And when she's confessing to these crimes oh, yes. earlier, do you think? And again, there's so much we, we don't yes. know. It's very important to be humble, right? About so like is is this a kind of a cry for help or a something that I've, she's making these claims
2: earlier in the narrative? Issue.
1: So yes. again to preface by saying I can only speculate. Um, because I'm the public historian and you're the, <laughs> the like real historian, just yeah, kidding, no. I'm also a real historian. <laughs> I can Very get away well. with that more easily than you can. But um, yeah. in all seriousness, <laughs> the fact that she loses this child and blames herself, we don't hear of anyone else blaming her, mm. but she deeply blames herself. Right. And the fact that whenever she is struggling The thing that happens is, so the next child dies um, suddenly. We don't know why. It was not her fault. Very common. But because she had had feelings of killing her child, um, she again blames herself. She Mm -hmm. tries to get others to blame her. And then again, later, when she is struggling, she tells people, I had a child and I, I destroyed this child. I mean, it's incredibly heartbreaking. And she even takes them to the place where she claims to have buried it, and there's nothing there. And midwives examine her and say, you did not have a child. Yeah, yeah. I mm-hmm, cannot speculate too much, but I think there was some very deep guilt there. I don't yes. think that is too far across a line to say that she has this self-blame, and All perhaps right. she is acting it out in a sense. I cannot read her mind, but there's clearly very deep self guilt and blame.
2: And okay, no,
0: I, a bit? Uh, I was going to just yes. say, and we have you know connecting her story to other. I mean, yes, yes. Women, especially women. poor women, yeah. uh, indigenous and black women, are so poorly documented. So rarely are literate authorities paying attention to them unless they say commit crimes exactly. or something else. Um, but you know, we have, you know, yeah, death and childbirth is so heartbreakingly common for so many societies, you know, human history, some places still today. And so there's not a lot of great scholarship on, but we do see traces of it in the records of other, you know, of other women horribly affected by this. Um, and again, you know, the disability history and history of mental illness is still very, uh, Understudied, you Mm -hmm. know, and trauma and and all those things.
1: It's it's difficult to not look at it from a modern perspective as we're having a more um, a fuller cultural understanding of what trauma, especially early childhood trauma, does to a person.
0: And not to tease too far ahead, but these religious awakenings Mm -hmm. in the 1740s, (laughs) you have all these people having these physical reactions and emotion. You know, what a modern audience would interpret emotional breakdowns. Uh, I mean, visions, they, nightmares. So people
1: thought it was pretty weird back then. Too. Yeah, <laughs>
0: then exactly. People, right. Oh, yes. And they're, ha- they're fainting. They're crying out. Wow. They're, the, the earth is opening up. And right. so, you know, the fact that so many of these people were young and they were women. Yes. Certainly we don't want to yeah. say it was only them. Yeah, were, right. You know, it was everybody. Yeah. But uh, there's, yeah, these societies had a lot of, it was a very useful explanation yes. or mm-hmm. helpful one to explain all
2: kinds of stuff.
1: And so after this point... um,
2: I just wanted to add one thing on on the case of the second child that patients had, which lived, I think she says, in the narrative about two months and then then suddenly died, which is, of course, very common. And this, of course, we get from the published narrative. But this is one of the cases where there are other sources. So, of course, you know, if the narrative is the only source for something, it's easy to, you know, to... uh, not be absolutely certain that this happened but in this case there is a court record dating from 1732 so just to get the timeline patience is put into the york jail for another murder um that we'll be getting to and, uh, in this case I'm sorry maybe a real what year is she born so we get her She's age born 17- in 1711 Eleven. Okay, the day you. after christmas okay and in 1732 she comes in to the court for this saying, claiming that she had killed her child with her husband, that she had with her husband, Boston. So we have the record, a very short one page record of the justices at the court. Um, Barnstable was the court. Um, and they are asking her, Did you kill this child? She says, Yes. And then they say, You've told us that this is how you killed the, the child. And they, they detail how she killed it. And then she says, Yes. So her only word in this whole record is yes. And then at the end of the document, it says, and then Patience was asked to sign this to testify that this was her uh, word. And then there's no mark or signature, of course. Now I was when I found this record, I was interested in seeing if we had a, if we could actually mm-hmm. see her writing with her own hands. But she didn't sign it because, as she says in the narrative, it wasn't true. And she went to trial and said, all of that is, is false. I was lying. I said, I, yes, I had killed the child, but I hadn't. And so I plead, and not guilty. And she was, of course, found not guilty.
1: And in the narrative, she says she, she decides not to tell any more lies because she's afraid that it will lead to her destroying her own life, which she is afraid is a worse sin than destroying the life of her child, which right. is not true. So you can feel that palpable guilt that she has either heaped on herself or absorbed from the culture. Um, and this brings us pretty close to where yes. she gets famous. Yes.
0: Um, so then how does she end up in Maine, right? This Cape Cod resident.
1: So she right. asks to be sold twice. Um, she asks at some point here, she was sold to Captain yes. Dimmick.
2: Captain Dimmick. Yes.
1: Whoever that is. And, um, well, we know who that is. Sorry. <laughs> 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 and, uh, I'm just proving what I said yeah. earlier about not being a real historian. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um, and then she asks to be sold again. We don't know yes. the exact details of all of this. She then represents herself as essentially a single woman. She doesn't mm-hmm. make reference. Um, she just calls herself patience. A single woman.: A single woman. And she, she ends up with this, this man, Joseph Bailey of Casco Bay, and then then she is
0: sold,
1: sold again again. But at that point, she's and servants, their
0: time could be sold, right? That was the deal. The legal, technically, it is their time, not their bodies being sold, right?
1: Kind of amounts to the same thing in practice, correct? And she ends up with the Skillens family. And if any of you grew up here, you know that name. Mm -hmm. There's a Skillen is it middle school Mm -hmm. or um, or elementary school in South Portland. Um, The name's still around, so it was Skillings or Skillin at the time, Um, but she is with um, Benjamin Skillin's family. Uh, We actually just yesterday discovered their farm, which is on um, Back Bay uh, near George Street. It's no longer there. It's just some houses now, but... And this is where she is uh, in servitude for a while and she really hates her master. She really emphasizes how much she hates this man, which to me...
0: Mm-hmm. Do we know much about him or what their relationship would have been? We don't. Uh, much.
1: We're learning more about it. Okay, um, That's sort of our avenue right now. What's amazing about this story is we have one big source and a couple of tiny sources like court yes. records. And yet we've been looking at it together for six or seven years and we're astounded by how many... Areas of potential learning are still available to us. Yes. Things keep opening up, and this is one of them. Yeah. So we're going to look more into the, the Skillen family. Yeah. Um, interestingly, I just found their genealogy, and it appears that the family does not know that um, sh- that one of their former members was murdered. So yes. um
2: so we should know here that Benjamin Skillens yes. is Patience's master that she was sold to. Right. he in Casco. And then Casco Bay, yeah. Casco Bay, yes. And Falmouth, <laughs> right. Um, now Portland, and so
1: she considers murdering him out of retribution for we know not what. Um, ultimately decides it's not feasible. So and this is you know very serious and sad. She lures his eight-year-old grandson to a well, um, and there's a pole in the well that she's thrown there, and she says, "Can you help me get it?" And then she throws him in and holds him under. Until he dies. This
2: is what she claims in the This is what she
1: relates later. And then she immediately goes to the authorities and says, I did this, here's where.
2: And that definitely happened.
1: And yeah. this brings us up to the narrative where she uh, is incarcerated in the York jail.
0: And just to be clear, so yes. she, she says,
2: I did this, and then somebody went and they found the child. Yes. The, the child was definitely drowned in the well. That I think that's one of the few facts that is absolute certainty about yeah. that this child, Benjamin Trott, yes. was found drowned in the well. If he hadn't been, then there would have been no case. So either she, patient, the, this text is telling the truth, and that patient's drowned her in the well, or he died by some sort of accident in the well. And we should say, like, for all the stereotypes of sort of
0: colonial and sort of, quote, Puritan Massachusetts, uh, whatever else they did, they were not particularly quick to execute. No, no definitely. Uh, and Patience Boston being the third. Yes. Uh, so there are various charges you might lay at the door of sort of Puritan society, but just being, you know, a, a sort of execution happy society uh, was very, is, is not one of them. Whereas so in big... London and throughout England, the right. picture
2: is quite different.
0: Right. Yeah, in yeah. the 18th century, yes. you, you can get executed for all manner of, like, fairly low-grade you know, theft and stuff like Very that. Very easily. Yeah. So yes. New
1: England is the place to be. Um, in that sense, <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Um, okay, so, yes. Yeah, so we're up to this uh,
2: mm-hmm. actual, so there's a trial then, presumably, mm-hmm. right? And she's... Well, there isn't a trial yet. Oh, sorry, okay. So Go just ahead. like the way our legal system operates nowadays, there's a grand jury, and then there's a petty jury trial. And so, at this time, uh, Patience is in the County of York, of course, we're not in the County of York uh, currently, but in 1734, Falmouth was part of York. All of Maine,
0: which was just anywhere the English people had, <laughs> yeah. had occupied at this point, was York County until yes. 1759. So, it's giant yep. county. So if you want to see the colonial records of any trial, civil mm-hmm. or criminal, mm-hmm. you go to the York County Uh, Uh, records up through 1759 it's very convenient if you're (laughs) lazy like me and you want to do like the whole colony's legal history up to 1759 it's all go to Augusta it's all there but unfortunately (laughs) if there's appeals it ricochets all the way up to Suffolk County Uh, then you got to go to Boston too bad and you got to go to the Massachusetts State Archives where you can find various court records so sometimes you have to kind of Follow you know across state lines and that whatnot. Part of microfilms. The it is. It is indeed. Uh, I have strong preferences about microfilm readers, thanks to my, uh, which is you know a very sad thing to confess to. Oh, the microfilms. Yeah, yes, I know. I know. We, we're in the same position. Oh, yeah. You get your arm work out when you're sort of like uh-huh. like that. So all right. So, so to the to the case, and we should note yes. the court comes to you. Court travels, yes. they talk about riding circuits in this oh, yeah. case in American life, all the way into the 19th century, oh, yeah. Abe Lincoln clip-clopped his way mm-hmm. with the court as a lawyer in, in mm-hmm. Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people would, one of the rare, and you can correct me on this, I'm wrong, we'll talk about the incarceration, but yes. in cases where people would be incarcerated for periods of time, yes. sometimes it's just while they're waiting for court yes. to happen. Oh, yes. Because um,
1: incarceration wasn't so much a punishment as a waiting period. Yes,
2: Exactly. So, just a two-minute legal history of what happened to Patience Boston. She went and said to someone, we don't know who, presumably some sort of town officer that she found, that I have murdered this child. And then, in the narrative, she says, the jury brought in willful murder. So, almost certainly, this means the grand jury. Now, I've been looking into this more recently, and she also talks in the narrative about how the jury brought the corpse of the body to the trial Mm. and she asked, at least she says in the narrative, she specifically asked for this so that she could undergo the touch test this is an ancient English legal ritual in which it was thought dating back to the middle ages in England that if someone who had murdered a corpse touched the corpse then fresh blood would flow from the corpse and of course as everyone knew um, corpses don't bleed. <laughs> and, and so this was seen as supernatural, because only, only God could do this, this was not natural. Um, and Patience says in the narrative, and this was still this was practiced by English courts throughout the 18th century, although I do think it was dying out mm-hmm. by, by this time. And so I think it was Patience specifically asking for it that prompted them to say, well, sure, let's try this. Um, and someone might
0: yeah. ask, were they, because uh, there were lawyers in Maine, well, um, to a limited degree. Yes. Right? Some people really hated them then, as yes. now. Um, people who were on trial, especially for serious offenses, mm-hmm. were they entitled to an attorney uh, in colonial Massachusetts, which claimed Maine at this time? It
2: was really changing at this time. I know that in the Salem Witch Trial, 1692, mm-hmm. of course, there were no actual lawyers, and the, the judges the which court acted as basically prosecuting as mm-hmm. well as, de, as, well as de defending. So that was the job of the English judge. And then slowly, you do have lawyers being modern day, what would what, what you think of the role of the lawyer comes into form in the 18th century in the English legal system. Now, in the 1730s, um, this wasn't the question that I've looked into for patients because, of course, she pled guilty and right. so there was okay. never any need for and a lawyer. She was quite
1: insistent that yes. she was guilty.
2: And that's, of course, a whole, a whole topic. And we touched on that earlier mm-hmm. with her previous cases where she pled not guilty. Um, but the, the grand jury said, yes, there is an evidence here for a trial. This child may have been murdered. She touched the body at the coroner's jury, which is a separate jury, which sits to, say, to look at the, at the physical evidence of a, a body. Um, and so that was at the coroner's jury, probably, that she touched the, the body. And she says in the narrative, the blood didn't flow from the body, which I think is what actually happened. Well. And of course, in. <laughs> I, I expect so, yes. In, in, it, I, I say that because in, in some cases, the court records say that the person touched the body and the blood did flow from it. Um, However, Patience then says in the narrative the blood didn't flow and she says that this was God testing me to see whether I'd be truthful because Mm -hmm. now I had a way to get out of it by pleading not guilty. Yet I personally know that I have murdered this child, so God is saying, you know, you don't you don't here is a a, a way for you to lie. That's what that's how the, the text says that she interpreted. That's the framework, the sort of spiritual framework of what's going on here how she dealt with this basic fact, I think, that the body didn't bleed. And then she was sent to the only jail in the county, uh, which was the uh, York jail in York, Maine, which was the county seat, the shire town, as it was called. Mm-hmm.
1: And which is still standing. Yes. visit <coughs> um, <laughs> it? Has anyone been there? Hmm? Oh, gosh. I think
3: you've been there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes.
1: <laughs> um, we consider the jail one of our primary sources because yes. uh, the cell in which patients was held is still there. And How many
0: cells are in it? Oh, oh that's a good now? That's um, Or well, were, I suppose. Two,
1: three. Well, the, that one was divided into two. Yeah. Something like five.
2: It's about five. It's Five-ish. A, you know, um, it's a big building, but for the jail for all of Maine, you right. know, it's yeah. somewhat small. And it's a <laughs>
1: very, I mean, you go in there and it's a visceral experience. So patients, um, somehow I have neglected to man- mention to this point that she is pregnant Um, And do we
0: know by whom? We do
1: not. Which, again, I cannot speculate.
0: So it could have been by her master involuntarily. It could have. Right. It It could have.
1: And Mm -hmm. we will almost definitely never know. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. in some way, she she became pregnant. And um, so she was in the jail, not only waiting for trial. Am I getting that right?
2: Yeah, she's waiting for the, the petty jury trial.
1: But also, of course, could not be... Once execution was handed down, she could not be executed while pregnant. Of course, yeah. So, and she was in relatively early stage. How long was she in the jail?
2: So she was in the jail for about a year, for about yeah. 12 months, which is pretty unusual, yeah. Very, yeah. Yeah. Somewhat. Now, uh, okay. you have Joseph Croissant, who was the previous man who was hanged in York. Um, and so we could talk about him for hours. Uh, this is... But... Um, <laughs> He was hanging semi-26 for murder, and he was in the jail for about nine months. Of course, he wasn't. He wasn't pregnant. Um, so, that what, that know. Samuel Moody published his narrative too, um, which is somewhat of a and was also an indigenous, man. and he was and also, he was also Nosset. from Nosset. He was a Nosset person. He was from the which same is town as patients.
1: Number two of the things that we're really looking forward to looking into, yes. and we hope to um, at some point visit, and if we're able, meet some, yes. you know, people from that community oh, yes. uh, to speak with them. But, yes. um, and I should say, anytime you need us to stop talking about something, please tell us. Oh, no, this no, as more kind of a tangent. Well. Um,
2: but just well. to say for Croissant, he was there for a long time because the, um, the court, which tried capital cases, the Superior Court of um, Judicature, um, came up from Boston to York about once per year. And so for Croissant's case, he had to wait for it. And then once they sentenced him to death, they gave him an extra month to ready his soul. For patients, they did give her about a month, too. Um, I think that they knew she was pregnant, so there was no hurry. I think yeah. the court thought, if we make this big trip up and sentence her to death, we're going to have to wait for months anyway, so we might as well wait. So we have other cases of you know colonial women.
0: Uh, I mean. Americans, you know, theater goers, of course, know most from The Crucible, where ah. there's Elizabeth Proctor, um, you know, of course, plays are not documentaries. And then as my own students from the pirate class at Bridgewater State <laughs> University. Uh, sorry, was it Anne Bonny or Mary Reed? Mary Reed, the, one of the famous pirate. She was uh, she was pregnant. And so That's right. uh, she was uh you know, not executed for a good while. And then eventually got out. Was she the one who got away? No, she got um, executed because he
3: captain her
0: out. Oh, that's right. Oh, Jack Rackham. Terrible pirate. Anyway. Jack Rackham, yeah. I'm so bad at it. Anyway, I digress. So, like, this is, you know, this again puts uh, uh, Patience Boston in this company yes. of these... Yeah. incarcerated pregnant women Yes, um, that, that sort of throws this extra complication into their... their and this is case. where
1: it gets really interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. it's been interesting all along, of course. <laughs> but at this point, she's visited by the two ministers of the town mm-hmm. um, and other ministers. Yes. She has people come from away to visit her. Mm-hmm. And they begin um, essentially trying to comfort her soul while also, um, you know, she has a Bible. She starts reading other prison narratives. She starts reading widely. Um, yes. And ultimately has a conversion experience. And this is the center point of her narrative. She has a, a conversion experience that is in many ways almost ecstatic. Um, While well, these two ministers, who are father and son, and are very interesting in their own right, are visiting her. And she dictates... This experience um, and her thought process um, yes. and this was a literary form at the time these yes. prison narratives um, and so this was not unusual but the reason yeah. we know so much about her is because of this narrative that was published um, in two. there was a short version that was eight <laughs> pages long published quickly after her death and then a much longer version three years later yes um, and this is why people know of her essentially because of this this narrative
0: yes so i gotta ask quickly so these two ministers samuel and joseph moody (laughs) and yes yes. you're right they'll get their own episodes in the future yes got it so many different ones but uh how common was this why there were not a lot of ministers in colonial Maine at this point no they're very busy um why are they going down to the jail Mm. To go and spend all this time with this at this point convicted, right, by the courts, okay. Okay. killer of a child. Why, you know, why are they showing so much interest?
2: Excellent in question. Well this we wrote a paper,
1: paper that really answers this question. All right. This is great. Yes. Yeah.
2: Plug
0: Okay. <laughs> so yeah, so why was this common? Were 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 ministers frequently going mm-hmm. to jails and going, oh, All right, and Mr. Let's Pirate, talk. let's talk. <laughs> all right, let's go. Which is yeah, you get pirates. Death speeches and convert, you know oh, all yeah. the rest. You're supposed to happen at death. So yeah. yeah, why are why are they doing this? And
2: I just want to lay out for people who don't know York, um, it was very easy for them to get to the jail. At least for Samuel Moody, yeah. because the meeting house where he lived was on the other side of the street. You can walk right from where his house was to the jail in about a minute, okay, thirty seconds if you're running. Okay, <laughs> have you tried? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> So it was very easy and of course Joseph was and they created a special parish for him in York because most towns just had one parish although um, there were you know parishes formed a second parish in a town formed if the town was large and people had trouble getting to the one church but they formed a second parish for Joseph because he was a minister but his father looked like he was never going to die or step down. Yeah. And Joseph didn't want to leave. So many daddy issues in that family. <laughs> so oh many. man, so they created his own parish. Freudian playground, yes.
0: Um, it's a time and a half. It is.
1: But it's interesting because you've got so to to talk about Samuel and Joseph. Samuel is still known somewhat in this town as this towering personality. This um, he puts Jonathan Edwards to shame in his preaching style. Okay, that yes. might be a slight exaggeration, but only just. Only just. Yeah. He's passionate and terrifying and. Keeps lots of uh i don't know if i want to say guilt but he really makes people doubt their salvation he doesn't want anyone yes. to be too sure yes. he leans into this concept of preparationist predestinarianism which yes. um is super fun <laughs> uh it is not
2: and yeah.
1: it's like calvinism on steroids but
2: you
0: can't control your faith god's going to do everything Try but you really hard, anyway. tweak the rules around the edges yes. and you're technically not breaking the rules. Right. Also, I love some of his like flexi prefaces in his published sermons where he's like, I'm from Maine. We don't have nice bread. We have really crummy food up here and it makes our souls stronger. So yes. listen up. Right. You know, um, like That's he's right. very, but he's got this whole sermon about God's got everything planned. But you can kind of work the edges of this, and you're not cheating. And, and so he has I figured it out. One weird trick, everybody. <laughs> One <weird> trick, <laughs> that's right. Know. He has this
1: strong belief that you should never be sure you're saved. Yeah, right. You should always doubt your salvation because essentially it's arrogant to assume that, that you mm-hmm. Have, mm-hmm. have salvation, which is a kind of a weird thing to believe in conjunction with predestination. Right. Um, yes. But Joseph, his son, is quite different. Um, and I think quite Mm -hmm. heavily affected by his father's personality and style. Hard act to follow. Yeah, (laughs) Um, but Joseph uh, writes the sort of epilogue that covers the moment of Patience's death um, and is quite beautiful in its way. Yes. And we have an excerpt from his diary from when he was, what, 21?
2: Well, he was twenty to twenty-four yeah. when he wrote the extant part of his diary. Right. Yes. The
1: part that we still have, so we get a, an idea of Samuel's personality more from his published works and what people said about him, and then and also Joseph, what people said about him. Mm-hmm. But um,
2: we have a few of of Joseph's sermons. We We have do. one sermon book, which was taken down by uh, one, of one of the people. I think one of the people oh. who was in the Meeting House listening okay, to his yeah. sermons and who wrote it down over two years.
1: And there is a difference. They both focus yes. on, on this, um, this need to be honest about your sin, but, um, and this need to be aware of your sin, but Joseph has a little bit more of a focus on grace. Um, and yet the tragic thing is that Joseph was never, I don't know about his last moments, but able mm-hmm. to accept that he was uh, a recipient of salvation. Yes. And he doubted it to this agonizing point.
0: Didn't he, yes. something he shared in its own way, I believe he accidentally killed uh, yes. a yes. playmate growing up he like, with his a loaded gun him. or something, and right? And his
1: dad made him sit next to the body all night. Yes. Like, oh, he, well, he,
2: that that's probably not not true. Oh, thank God. That was created <laughs> in the 19th century. Okay. But I, and so it's easy to say this this whole story of him shooting this uh, Preble, and of course the Prebles were intermarried with the Moody family. I don't uh-huh. know if it was his cousin, but they were definitely inter- intermarried.
1: Me are bringing the pop history here, apparently. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but this is definitely true. So this, this boy, um, Preble, uh, was a little bit older than Moody. So Moody was about eight. He was a few years older. And in the diary of the minister of Dover, a guy named Reverend Pike, he writes on a the, on the few days after this happened, he said, I heard from York that Samuel Moody's son, Joseph, with a gun by accident killed this, this boy Preble. Can you imagine? So that definitely happened. I think he must have been haunted by guilt from that throughout his life.
1: His dad also tried to give him away at one point. Yes, there's that um, too,
2: yes. Give him away, oh. So.
1: Yeah, this is, this is my other favorite. So uh, it was not a totally unheard of thing to trade sons in order to foster like cultural connection, but he had written to Chief Bombazine of the Eastern Indians um, yes. and As the
0: Puritans would have called them, this would have been yes. the, the Wabanaki
2: oh, living at Norwich Walk at the he, t- he was at Norwich Walk, yes. Um,
1: fascinating man. I'm very mm. interested in him. But Samuel wrote to him, and we learned this from Samuel Sewell.
2: This is from Samuel Sewell writing a letter alone. to his friend in England. Yes. But he wrote
1: but, to Chief Bombazine um, and said, and I wish I knew his Wabanaki name, I only know the. Bombazine is a kind of fabric. Um, oh, yes. But he wrote to him and said, would you like to, essentially, my son will come live with you and learn your language and culture, and your son will come with me and become a Christian. And Chief Bombazine, very wisely, was like, nah.
2: Become a Christian, he says. Now, Bombazine was, of course, in close contact with the um, Jesuit priests. Right. right. And they so, are, for Joseph for Samuel Moody, although Bombazine may have claimed to be Catholic, that was not the same as being Christian. Right, Right. so Chief Bombazine
1: basically said like, no, I'm not going to do that. Bombazine said Um, no. Which I think was a good call on his part.
2: Joseph was 12 at the time, Yeah. yes.
0: He and I love he for a while in his diary. He teaches school because that's what the minister's son is supposed to do yes. when he's waiting for a job. Joseph does not like children. We know this because he <laughs> says so. Like my students are little jerks. Um, I went to school today. Like oh those kids. Uh, my favorite passage in there. He was so he was technically not a Puritan. Uh, as scholars would say, but spiritually descended from them. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Christmas is sinful because it's not in the Bible. So he shows up to school on Christmas Day. None of the students show up because they all want to go play on Christmas. And so (laughs) he's extremely salty about this. Uh, But then he says, like, so I spent the day... Uh, walking on stilts and drinking milk punch my friend's <laughs> house. Uh, Might as well let it not let
2: it be said that they didn't have fun. Uh, so. And he actually spells. He says they said they weren't here because of something they call Christmas, and he spelled it C H R I S T M I S. I asked. They spelled it wrong.
0: Well, as the Puritans would say, was one of them famously said. Uh, you cannot have Christ and mass in the same sentence since mass is for Catholics. Right. Exactly, and so exactly. it might as well be devil's mass or something like well, that. Well, mass, so. of course. was. So yes. the, the, pure, the, the Protestants would sometimes call it Christ-tied. And that's the oh, yeah. way to sanitize all that Catholicism out of it. Um, very nice. But we're, we're getting a bit of far afield. So yes. getting... Please bring, uh, us back. bring it. back on track. So back to uh, speaking of the Moody's and uh, Patience Boss. So they take yes. this... Uh, they take this story of hers down. We know it is edited to certain degrees. Yes, they say so, and they're open about right. that. Right? Why? So can I ask then? So they publish this. Yes. Yes. Why? Who is reading it? As far as I can <laughs> tell, and why? What is the? Is this sort of mm-hmm. salacious? You know, intended as such, right? Was this uh, inspirational? Right. Right, I is this informative? Right. What is? What right. is the purpose of this text? That's the major evidence of Patience Boston's life.
2: I- I would say that the Moody's and their publishers did not want it to be read as a crime story. Right. Of course, many people in the in the audience in Boston throughout the colonies probably were more interested in the criminal details, which right. may have been sad, but only covered three of the thirty-eight pages. Now, as we move towards the end of the 18th century, more of these narratives about people who are going to the gallows become more and more focused on the details, the violent details of mm-hmm. the crime, because that's what the public wants. There's that history
0: of the other other narratives of redemption do that, where like, oh, let me tell you the story of this fallen woman. It's all about morals, but they just have fairly like sexy gossip about okay. like yeah. their adventures. And then they'll even the first novels are supposedly morality tales but it's all like bodice ripping kind of stuff, but with a sort of, at the end, like, oh, and that was all really bad, and now it's better now. So you right. read this for your, for your morality, so that's what this is for, everybody. It's cool. Yes.
1: And it's, it's fairly clear, both just from reading the narrative, which is on um, early American imprints, it's easy yes. to find online, mm-hmm. and I do recommend reading it, because it's, it's, it's in this, this book. woman's words. Um, and one of the things that has been neglected most in scholarship about patience is patience. Mm -hmm. She is usually present in scholarship to promote somebody's um, possibly correct thesis. I'm not saying it's Mm -hmm. always wrong, Mm -hmm. but I feel very strongly that this woman left a story and her story is lost in um, people's pursuit of a uh, end result. Mm -hmm. Um, Where was I going with this?
2: Um, the, oh, who's reading this narrative <laughs> yes. and what they're the right.
1: So these have been published um, for quite some time at this point. And Patience mentions reading some other criminal narratives, oh, yeah. like she reads um, something by Cotton Mather. He has a collection. She reads
2: them. all of Cotton Mather. She reads everything Cotton Mather, um, um, as we all do. <laughs> well, he's he's the big guy, yeah. Yeah, Increase Mather, she reads too. Right. But Cotton Mather published a book of called Pillars of Pillars of Salt which is a basically is about 15 or so narratives of people who were who were hanged
1: and these are very much um these are very much like cautionary morality tales they are not salacious um
0: and these are mostly which i think most of the hanged people were like pirates and such right like the most
2: common okay so in the 18th century here's 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 some stats um good because you know we if you think about oh you know Capital punishment. A, you think of a vague picture, but actually, we have records of you know almost. I think probably almost everyone who was hanged. We we're probably missing a few okay. people, but if you look at, at that, it's about. I think we say we have all these stats in the paper. I think it's about 340 people were hanged for capital. Of course, were hanged in New England from 1620 to 1776 that we know of. I would suspect there'd be a few more. A few more in there. The number one crime throughout this period is murder. The number two crime is piracy. And murder is, I think, there's triple the murders of uh, pirates. And then you have witchcraft is the number three in terms of numbers. It was overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly the Salem, uh, mostly the Essex County witch craze. Mostly yeah. Salem, yes. Yeah. 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 Essex County, yes. Like it
0: was an unusually large event, and it was, you know, in that sense yes. where it was otherwise
2: not a common yes. capital right. offense, right. and that's all in the, in the 1600s. So once, of course, you get to the 1700s, piracy and murder dominate, and of course, you have many other crimes too, which are very few people were hanged for. Even when they're on the books, Massachusetts famously executed
0: one couple for adultery. Just one, yes. Because it is in the Bible that it is a capital crime. But the evidence we have is that people were so appalled after the sentence was carried out after the first time that what people did is, because it's God's law, they didn't change the law. And instead, when people testified that they caught somebody uh, adultering. If you will, they would instead say, well, I saw them lying together in a state of undress, but that's all I saw.
2: So Uh they'd only get charged
0: with just sort of lower levels of Ah. kind of, you know, sexual crimes, not adultery. And therefore they would not be executed and they would only be like flogged or otherwise shamed, dissonant. Right. Exactly right. Well, because people were much more civilized today. We put you in a cage for 10 years. Right. Right. So they didn't do that. In colonial oh, and, no. and, rights, so, so instead you either got a court of corporal punishment. Mm-hmm. In some cases, you got, of course, fined. Mm-hmm. Uh, in extreme cases, you were, as they sometimes called it, transported. So you, yes. you basically mm-hmm. shipped off to be basically a slave for life, like a convict somewhere. Right. Uh, or you'd be hanged in those cases that you, right. you, know, you laid out.
1: Right, and you know, patience um, is an example of how sometimes these narratives were were essentially educational to other prisoners. Um, for all the criticisms of the, you know, Calvinistic—I don't want to say Puritan because Danny will get mad—but <laughs> we could say
2: Puritan for the 1600s. Okay, Puritan in the
1: 1600s, and then descendants of the Puritans in the 1700s. For all the criticisms of them for their severity, um, they really cared that people be saved. They—they yes. they did genuinely want salvation for other people. I mean, obviously I can't speak for every human that's ever lived, but this was the goal. And so sometimes people seem to think that it was like brownie points for them if they got somebody converted. Mm. But at least in the case of the Moody's where we have so much evidence of their writing and her writing, they wanted this woman to find um, what they considered to be truth. And uh, she was really nurtured in that by the community, which is one of mm-hmm. the very interesting things about this. So, um, you were asking about narratives specifically. So, mm-hmm. she read some of the the former prisoner narratives as. I'm sure they were given to her as examples, um, both what to do and what not to do, because a lot of them do not end happy. They're not like, we are 100% sure this guy's going to heaven. A lot of the time it's more like, we are not at all sure that this guy's going to heaven. Oh yeah. But we tried. But we tried. Um, (laughs) That's sort of what the Joseph Croissant.
2: Croissant is more, a little, definitely not as hopeful as Patience, but I'd say Samuel Moody, who is actually, most of it is Samuel Moody's words, which makes it different from Patience. Samuel Moody says, I'm pretty sure Croissant is going to be saved, but I can't be absolutely confident. Right. Whereas with patients, he says, I am 100% confident that patients will be saved, which um, is a pretty radical thing for him to say. It
1: was. So, also, just the general public could read these as mm. um, as yes. in, informative and educational. And, um, you know, it's worth noting that patients, I assume, we think, knew she would likely have her story yes. um, published and knew sort of the format of these things. So people at times ask, Mm -hmm. was she just repeating what she was told? Did she just say what she wanted them to hear? We consider that there were three authors to this narrative, Mm -hmm. Joseph, Moody, Samuel, Moody, and Patience Boston, and that they were equal participants in it. Mm -hmm. Um, Not everybody approaches it that way, but having read it, I believe that her experience was genuine, partly because of the. Well, one reason is the scriptures she quotes. She mm-hmm. doesn't just throw out like whatever the colonial equivalent of John three sixteen was that mm-hmm. everybody knows, <laughs> not everybody. But she gives a real deep um, yes. reflection on the various passages of scripture that she has read.
0: Yes. Can we ask? So there's some been good work about uh, indigenous missionaries. Uh, working among indigenous communities, especially on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Oh, yes, so yes. like, for example, among the Nosset, another Wampanoag, a lot of the people preaching and proselytizing and getting converts are themselves indigenous, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, often in their own languages. And yes. so there is this history of indigenous Christianity that doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not a, shall we say, easily used history for mm-hmm. all kinds of different audiences in different times and places which is arguably why it's, there's not a lot of work done on it until recently um, yes. but so there's a certain scholars have pointed out there's a certain kind of trend and sort of there's there's different styles and patterns of various communities conversion narratives and it doesn't mean oh, it's yes. not genuine but in the same way that when people today not making moral equivalents talk about like hmm. ufos right <laughs> Uh, you're all you've never seen an alien, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Mm. Why is that? Because there's a narrative of it. There's popular <sighs> ideas. So They're there's a format teeth. of certain conversion narratives yes. that people are expected to go through and that they reach for and access. Yes. Among indigenous converts, that often looks somewhat different yeah. than uh, sort of right. Anglo colonists. And right. so, does Patience's story track um. like <laughs> some of these? Uh, indigenous folks on the
2: Cape or elsewhere that you know of? that's a good question. I would say that Patience's narrative uh, if you didn't know that Patience was native when you read it, you would uh, you wouldn't be able to to guess that. Okay. she makes uh,
1: one reference to being uh, does she call herself a poor Indian?
2: No, she says oh what well, she says other the narratives of other poor Indians, so the other so, tells you that she's also okay. an Indian she
1: has read about other as she calls them poor Indians converted yes um, so
2: that's the only reference to her being native right, right. except and, for the bio
1: and this becomes um, one of the other interesting points of the narrative is how much essentially her her race and her identity as a native woman played into how she was received um, and we know that like i said there were there were ministers visiting like um, what's his face smith thomas. thomas
0: thomas smith down the road yeah yes. got yes. a, not We've a, a, great a, a guy. diary of his that survives a lot yes, yes. it's not here he a, invested in uh,
2: wabanaki scalp bounties in yeah, the on, on bodies. young yes. thomas, thomas smith he um, he did visit patients in the jail he did but and of course he was Mr. here, right. where patients had actually had, been, had been living. But in the 1735 narrative, which is the short text, which Hannah mentioned, it is signed by six ministers who say that we have talked to, to patients, and we are certain that she has been saved. Now Thomas Smith, we know, did talk to patients, but he does not sign this.
1: Hmm. I have opinions about Thomas Smith.
0: He's,
2: his diary is
0: very rich. He also did not like. His early uh, neighbors here, when he, in his mm-hmm. diary, he shows up at the end of this war in the 1720s, and he says, "I visited this place that he takes a job on." And he says, "Most of the people living there were mean animals." <laughs> uh, he calls them. I think uh, he
1: probably was asking for it. And yeah,
0: well, and he he then um, he sided with essentially to use labor. He sided with the like absentee rich speculator faction in town disputes in the 1730s over who to admit and grant land to. And Tom and Smith was very much, his diary is uh, one of the most detailed references to these otherwise very staid town Mm. and proprietors books where they will just, New England town records don't like to record uh, arguments. And so they will try and they will slug it out and then they will sort of try and write and give an illusion of consensus in the end. And Mm -hmm. so we know from Smith that he says, oh, there was a big row today at the meeting house and people are all ablaze. And there were these dueling sets of records kind of saying, I know you are, but what am I? And he's the one who's siding with kind of the big wigs against the quote, mean animals Uh, about uh, the place uh, who had been living here anyway Uh, yeah Yeah. exactly so he uh to to circle back here if we could talk about a little bit about then and the you mentioned race and it's worth pointing out so indigenous people were being racialized by uh anglo colonizers to various degrees there was never universal agreement among the colonizers about where to sort of place indigenous people in the great emerging tree of the races at the the sort of ugly stepchild of the enlightenment, if you will, that was coming out there. Um, They they clearly were in a separate category than African people. Uh, Colonizers did not all agree what what this meant or what the relation was. And this is why there was more argument about whether it was okay to enslave these people or not. These arguments were not isolated to English colonists. This is also in Spain and France and elsewhere. Uh, But so in the 18th century, to make a very complicated story not, uh, race began to matter more and more over time to English colonizers who increasingly identified as white and said that it mattered. Um, Whereas now this is sometimes little good for the indigenous people that they're killing for other reasons besides race. But if you're looking at how they are differentiating among people, uh, indigenous folks were not always racialized to the same degree, and if they could convert to Christianity, they would in in various circles sort of be considered, okay, among the family of Christians, as long as they cut their hair and dress properly according to English
2: vice. And yeah.
1: this is where it becomes very tied in with Catholicism mm-hmm. versus Protestantism, sure. which Danny yes. can speak on very well. Oh. But this is one of our points um, that we've really looked into is we were looking at York, a town that has had um, what's known as the Candlemas Raid um, in, what, 1692? Yeah.
0: Which is a weird name because the English don't celebrate these yeah. holidays. Yes, it
1: is very weird. It was applied later. In oh, the yeah. <laughs> 19th
0: century. I 19th wish century. we wouldn't call it that. I wish it's it so anachronistic. Yeah. 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 Um, anyway, so, so the 1692 attack. At yes. 1692 attack.
1: attack. Um, on the town of York, which was just a, another piece in which war King, King William's War, yes. William?
0: Yeah. Okay. The second of the second six, war. eventually, of right. Anglo-Wabanaki Wars.
2: And Malaysia. it was
1: a devastating raid. I think there uh, were about 100 people taken?
0: 100
2: people taken, about 50, 60 people killed.
1: Right, and many of those people were later redeemed back um, mm-hmm. and were able to return. But, but not all of them. Not all, and this was obviously devastating to the town. Now it's worth noting that this was not like Some people used to use the word massacre. We don't use that word for this because it was not an out-of-the-blue killing. It was part of a series of Mm -hmm. wars. But there was a great deal, even 40 years later, of fear and tension. And um, this association, not only with um, the the native peoples as potential aggressors, but also associating them with Catholicism, which was seen as... The antithesis of Christianity, arguably yes. worse than, uh, yeah.
0: uh, arguably worse than the indigenous religions. Sometimes exactly. the English would say, "Well, we can work with these people who are just <laughs> sort of pagan." <laughs> pagan. but yeah. Catholics. <laughs> well, the Catholics, well, that's, uh, that's different. Right.
2: Exactly. exactly. <laughs>
1: so we've got this this deep fear of Catholicism, this fear of um, mm. you know, or this memory of these mm. devastating mm. events in the past. Yes. Um, and do you want to talk a little bit yeah, about that?
2: Definitely. Um, yeah, I'll just pick up where you, you left off. Hmm. So the raids in 1692, and May- York is still on the front line, as we, we would call it, of these wars through the 1720s. You have a war variously called Dummer's War, Father Rail's War, subject
0: of my next book. Uh, oh, the war worse. with too many names. That's Nobody's great. written a man mon- monograph on it yet. Because <laughs> it's had. extremely complicated. There's not any glamorous battles. There's yes. a few gross massacres and a lot of little fights. Um, it's very complicated. There's so, over of, Yes. Yeah. And of so, to make it very
2: briefly, York is on the front lines of, of Dummer's War. You still have that memory in the 1730s. So, how are you going to interact with a native woman who is presumably guilty of murder when? Within very recent memory, you you were in danger of being killed by Natives.
0: And these people knew each other. We, we know this because in the records, they will say, indigenous folks will say, like, well, we're after so-and-so because we know what you did. Yes. Uh, and the colonists will say, like, oh, yeah, we recognize so-and-so in the raid like because we used yeah, to do business, right. and now we're fighting each other. They so the fighting. idea that, like, if only they all knew each other's names, they would have gotten along... No, Alasim. these were not faceless yeah. no. foes. These were intimate relationships in various oh, yes. ways, killing oh, yes. each other in these in these wars. Oh, yes. It's really quite horrible to read about. Alasim. Yes. Um, so, sorry, but I got to ask. So this, for what we get to uh, people getting out of this, right? Yeah. All right. Um, Patience Boston's narrative, I put in the blurb because, you know, subtlety doesn't work for, for blurbs. <laughs> You know that Patience Boston's narrative of redemption uh, make of it what we will in terms of all the different authors played a role in sort of in some ways uh, it was one of the texts of inspiration for what later scholars would call the Great Awakening yes uh, which is in the history of American if not global Christianity really important yes uh, for laying the foundation of what today to use an imperfect (laughs) (laughs) anachronistic term, evangelical Christianity in the sense of intensely personal, emotional, radically egalitarian, across Mm -hmm. denominations, Mm -hmm. um, you know, stomping and yelling, emotive, fainting, all the rest. Um, What role did Patience Boston's story with the Moody's
2: play in bringing the Great Awakening to New England? All right. Here we go. Yes, So this actually (laughs) is the main topic of our paper that we've written. Um, and the narrative comes out in 1738. and George Whit- Whitfield is the spark. Uh, he is an, an English preacher who travels through the British colony starting in Georgia. and he gets to Georgia in 1740 and he gets up he goes all the way from Georgia up north. and he gets to York um, I think he gets to York in 1742. He travels in, in, in 1740. He travels pretty yeah. quickly. Uh, yes he's in New York in, in 17 oh no he gets to Georgia a little bit earlier 1739 and the Journal yes. of Maine History which yes. you should all subscribe to yes has a great primary source edited by Douglas yes. Winiarski
0: who I want to get on the show yes. Oh, Winiarski like like yes. Um about an unnamed traveler's journal of yes. it's journal of a few days U- spelled F-U-E F-E. days <laughs> F-U-E. at fury and he's talking about all these people really having these episodes and it's Absolutely, just rocking the place. Yes. Um, and Samuel Moody is basically like the hype man for, for Whitfield. Whitfield, yes. he, is, yeah. he is awakened before the awakening happens. He's yes. just sort of there. He's kind of like, what took you so long in his own way. <laughs> right, exactly. And people um, see him,
2: yeah. he's so old. He yes. was born in the 1670s. People see him as this 17th century style preacher, oh, yeah. which in many ways he is. But yet, it's like Whitfield. Is bringing the 17th century back, mm. yes. And so Samuel Moody has lived longer than almost all of his fellow 17th century ministers, um, and he's keeping that going. And he's basically seeing in these new, new, in these new-like ministers, as they're called, I would argue a re- return to the piety of the of the of the past, but
1: with more fainting,
2: But, but much more fainting. <laughs> yes, at least that's how Samuel Moody
0: sees it. Yes. And so do they, and is Patience Boston's narrative disseminated,
2: is she invoked? Um, uh-huh. um, well, it comes out, you know, 1738, I, I, I would think that York, you know, this big thing happens in 1741 in New York. And we have, you know, thousands of people coming to York. And Samuel Moody asks all of the local ministers to come to, to York. And we, we know from this diary that you mentioned that there are raucous meetings in the meeting house and in private homes. And in fact, York builds a new meeting house not too long after this, I think, because these people just probably trashed it. Um, um, because they're not sitting down. They as Samuel and the other ministers are preaching, they are, they are screaming, they are crying, they are jumping up and down. And, and down, they are looking for hope that they have been saved. Mm-hmm. And so they're going through what the 17th century Puritans took 40 years to do, very painfully, to see whether they had been predestined to be saved. They're going through that same process in an hour. Yeah. Um,
0: and the key difference, yes. we should say, and most of this, so spiritually, uh, most indigenous Christians in New England end up becoming eventually like Great Awakened churches they become new lights in the parlance, where it is radically egalitarian. And the big, so the shift is, here's the the twist, right? So the Puritans say, only God knows if you're saved or not. You should read the Bible and think about it really deeply (laughs) and figure out if you're saved. You'll never know for sure. Do good because God probably works logically. And so if you are an absolute, inveterate gambling whoremonger, you're probably not saved. If you are, you know, the head of the, if you're donating food to the right. poor and you're living a model, living a model life, that's more likely you are, yeah. right? So what the new, the Great awakened folks say is, look, actually, uh, you can decide, and you can decide if your minister is a bum and is preaching lies. You can figure that out for yourself, even yeah. if you're a slave, even yeah. if you're an in indentured servant, yeah. if you're a young woman, if we don't care where you're from, make that decision for yourself. Find a godly minister, go get saved. Yes. Um, and if, you, if you, you can make that decision yourself to then totally surrender yourself
2: and actually say God knows everything. Thank you. So it's still a sort of twist there. And but it's a minor one. It's that, all of those things. Patience fits this mold perfectly. And that's the big difference is they're saying that it's more likely for the poorer people on the bottom of the social scale to be saved. Right. And Patience fits into that mold in the 1730s.
1: And people come to her execution. So this is the, you know, whether or not they've read her narrative after that, um, for York itself, her execution is a big thing. You Mm -hmm. know, as a modern person, I'll never understand going to an execution. It sounds horrible, but people did. And um, her execution, she told... Her story, and this is what we believe was published as the shorter version of okay. her narrative. Yep. So she had it read out to her and approved it, yep. is what it says. Okay. Um, but she tells her story, she prays over the crowd. Um, if I recall correctly, she rejects potential executioners essentially yes. because she thinks it will reflect poorly on them um, or be bad for their spiritual development.
2: And, and the the um, hangman that she turns down is a black man mm. and she says that he is a member it would do dishonor to the church of which of which he is a member
1: but patience after you know, and if you read the narrative she is agonizing times in jail um, but she does achieve this sense of peace so she tells her story she makes it very clear that everyone should stay away from strong drink she returns yes. to that a lot don't be like me, don't drink um, but I mean she really believes that that was a factor in her Degradation, or what have you, um, mm-hmm. and she is asked, are, "Are you ready?" or "What are your final words?" Mm-hmm. And she says, essentially, quotes the Bible and says, um, "Unto the Lord I commit my spirit," yes. and very peacefully dies. Yes. But imagine the impact this would have on people. This this very poor, um, you know, servant indigenous woman with no family, um, who has committed one of the worst crimes is achieving this level of peace.
2: Yes, and Samuel preaches, preaches at, at this hanging and says that I am certain that she has been saved. And then to make it even more radical, he says, it is very likely that most of the people in this crowd are in danger of being damned.
0: Hence the title of this show, Gathering of the Damned. <laughs> yeah. We got to the title, yes. The dead. <laughs> so
1: that experience for the people in the audience likely really stuck with them, Mm -hmm. Um, and then you have people coming to town, you know, a couple of years later five six years later as the the Great Awakening really kicks off, and this is something that's in the backs of people's minds as that's taking place Um, So, you know, you've got the twofold aspect of people coming physically to see this and hear this Mm -hmm. and then the people who would have read her narrative later, and heard. Oh, Samuel Moody thinks everybody's going to help, but he's pretty sure she's not. Um, so
2: maybe there's hope. Yeah,
0: for me. Yeah. So my thought of, as we start to turn to wrap this up, almost spiritually, my thought of her successor is William Apes the yep. Pequot yes. uh, missionary uh, in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and he actually worked among the, the Nauset and others. Right, right. And again, his version of Christianity was extremely kind of radical um, anti-authoritarian egalitarian he was uh, he, he made fun of Massachusetts ban on interracial marriage uh, mixing and things like that And so these you know indigenous communities in Massachusetts by the Revolutionary era are heavily, Intermarrying mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Black Massachusettsians uh, yeah. as well as white ones, mm-hmm. and this is part of the reason they remain kind of working class uh, above all in the nineteenth century. So anyway, we have this kind of spiritual descendant among, in some ways, William Apes, mm-hmm. as well as other Great Awakening folks. All, yeah. But in terms of Patience Boston's actual physical descendant, what happens to uh,
1: this is child? one of yes. my favorite yeah. parts of yeah. the story. So. Patience um, gives birth and has a little bit of time with her child in prison. And once she has achieved that peaceful state, her only worry is for her child. Mm -hmm. She makes that clear. What's fascinating is her child is adopted, now not taken as a servant, but adopted Mm -hmm. by a very prominent man in New York town named Jeremiah Moulton. What people know Moulton for, and I, I hate saying this, but he was known as the Indian killer, right? Yeah. yeah. In the 19th um, century, definitely. Yeah. In the 19th but of century, Of course, at it's, least.
2: it's literally true. He, yeah. he led the attack on Norwich Walk in 1824. Yes.
1: And he was a child when the raid that we mentioned earlier on York took place, and he saw his family killed. Um, and I'm sure that stuck with him. But it's fascinating to note that this man who saw his, his family killed mm-hmm. by, by Native folks, who went on to lead raids on Native folks, he chose mm-hmm. to adopt Patience's baby. We don't know the full heritage of her baby, but he was at least half native. Right. Um, and that baby became a member of his family until he died, probably of diphtheria. In um, 1736.
2: A couple years yeah. later. And can you talk about the name?
1: So Patience named her child Philemon, or Philemon, depending on how you pronounce it. And this is... Um, Philemon is a name of a book of the Bible. And... This book is written to Philemon by Paul, and he is um, essentially enjoined to treat his slave, Onesimus, as a brother. Mm -hmm. She did not name her child Onesimus. Mm -hmm. She did not name her child after the slave. She named her child Philemon. And Mm
3: -hmm.
1: personally, I find that really moving and fascinating. Um, But this child, I think in, in some ways, this name is sort of representative of the fact that she achieved this level of peace and a certain level of acceptance. Yeah. Um, the congregation was regularly praying for her. Um, she sometimes got to go to meetings. Oh, she always. Okay, was she always able went to. to meeting. Yeah. Um, and. The fact that her child was treated in this way is just fascinating.
0: So, do we know about Philemon's uh, sort of adult life? He didn't yeah.
1: live. He died um, at age three. Age one. Oh, age one, think, age one yeah. of illness. Yeah. Oh. Um, which, you know, many other people in the molten, many other kids in the molten family yes. did too. But,
2: this was the outbreak of diphtheria yeah. in 1735 36, It killed like 500 people
0: it in in Maine, in Maine, know of, and out of a population of maybe 10,000, right. so this yeah. was like pretty serious. It was He's,
1: devastating. But I just I'm, I find it fascinating that um, that was the name she gave her child, yes. and hmm. and that was who adopted her child. Yes. Um. And I wish he'd lived so that we could know more, right. but yeah. yeah. But she uh, she said she felt great relief yeah. at the knowledge of who was adopting her child, yes, she says that in and there. that he would be taken in.
0: Interesting that yeah. she. Yes. So on that on that end. So if you had a, a final takeaway mm. uh, for what you know, what you would hope people coming to this mm. story took away from it,
3: mm.
0: you know. Yeah. Um, you know, people talk about a usable past or a sort of, you know, a yes. portable idea or argument. So what would you, what to you sticks out about this
2: story that you think you would, you'd like people to take from it? All right. So we'll each do our final sure. takeaway. All um, right. Go ahead. All right. I, I would say that I would encourage everyone to read the 1738 narrative. Uh, if you google "patients Boston narrative you can find a free text um, it also is published in this book Pillars of Salt 1993 by a man named Daniel Williams and in commentary on this text which is a fascinating text there um, for the last few decades there have been two ways that people have viewed it they've either taken the viewpoint that this is entirely the words of Samuel and Joseph Moody. Or they've simply taken it at its face value and said this is entirely Patience Patience Boston's words, and they don't even think about the big role that Samuel and Joseph Moody played. So I would just in- encourage everyone to read the text and to think about all three of these people who created this fascinating document.
1: And to follow on that, I think, My um, hope is that anyone who reads the narrative will consider patience as having agency. Yes. In almost all scholarship I've read about her, she's reduced in some way. Yes. Sometimes to the very, I don't like this, but sometimes it's the sensationalized Indian princess narrative, Mm -hmm. which is reductive in so many ways. There's no
0: such thing as Indian princesses, people. If someone tells you they're descended from one, they're lying make fun of them okay yes do that yes
1: (laughs) but patience was um an intelligent young woman who suffered who did something very wrong um as far as we know and who left an incredibly detailed and emotional relation of her own life and why when we read this Do we not read it as patients telling her story? Yes, we need to consider all of the historical factors that work into this um, or that play into this, but allow patients, do not look down on her, I guess, not you, but keep making (laughs) eye contact. She had the agency to tell a story and we should read it as the story she is telling. and I really think that her agency is the thing that I want people to consider most when they read her narrative.
2: Definitely.
0: Well, thank you. And I, I guess my thought too, like we, we so rarely have detailed accounts of ordinary mm-hmm. people's lives yes. throughout history, especially when they are unfree mm-hmm. or, or women yep. in various societies. And the fact that we have this record, of course, immediately makes her unusual and not ordinary in some way, but as close as we can get. Um, And to me, sometimes thinking about there are so many people with complex lives in the past who evoke all kinds of feelings uh, of across the spectrum among modern folks. Mm. And sometimes it's, you know, the fact that these people uh, in all of their human complexity You know, for me, dealing with the fundamental humanity of people in the past is sort of thinking about well, how they felt about their own lives and understood their own lives is not the same as how I would have. Um, And we owe it to the people of the past to sort of deal with their world as they saw it, and our feelings are not their concern, and we can, you know, we can deal with them ourselves, but that we can try and appreciate their humanity in all of its Amen. fullness uh, especially yes. since it's so yes. rare to be able to do that with anybody who lived so long ago. <laughs> exactly. uh, yes, And in, sometimes in people seconds. that live now. And some people live <laughs> now. No. Yes. Um, yeah. And so we will close our recording on that note and then allow uh, the audience to, to shower you with applause and questions yes. to their heart's content. Okay. Thanks everybody.